0: Jonathan and David, are with Christ himself and the Apostle John, uh, and so on. So I won't review all that, but I want this to be sort of a sequel to it. I'm going to the uh, 1 John. Now, Peter wrote more in his books about hope. James wrote more about faith. They did cover other subjects in their books. But those were the predominant uh, themes of those. And John the Apostle wrote more about love. Now, there are many other issues that he discussed in the Gospel of John. And in these three little epistles here at the end of uh, the New Testament, uh, he spoke mostly of love as well. So if you go through everything he wrote, uh, you will find more about love than anywhere else in the Bible. And, of course, in First Corinthians 13, we find that, uh, that the greatest thing is love. Faith and hope are very, very important, and they certainly are elements of love. But faith, one day, in the sense of a human being, will not be needed because we will be where we were supposed to wind up, in God's kingdom. Of course, ultimate faith in the Father and the Son is that we would live to- together forever with them in perfection. So that faith must remain. Uh, the only sense in which it might not would be that which Satan lost, wherein he decided that uh, he had more faith in himself than he did in God, so he fell from his high position. Uh, we would, once changed, never go there because God is making sure of it by putting us through the paces down here in Satan's world and helping convince us that lawlessness are not following the eternal's way winds up in misery and hate and war and everything we see going on around us in this world today. So the opposite of that is that is everyone doing according to God's way, and therefore there is peace and security and strength forever. So we are here to study the contrast, to understand. And once we are changed, then the kind of faith we need today to know that there is a God, and that He does love us, that He does work with us to help us fulfill the purpose for which He called us, That kind of faith is needed, and there will be very little of it when Christ returns. We need hope, and God gives us hope from time to time, and I think through some healings and various things, he's given us a lot of hope recently. So hopefully things are changing and turning around. Notice I use the word hopefully, a common word in our language, but its base is hope. So faith and hope are very, very important for us, and listed as one of the big three, but it says very clearly that love is the greatest, because when faith is not needed in the way we have it today, and hope is fulfilled, then love is what remains, and that love must be there forevermore between us and our father and our brother and husband, and between those children which are to come along in the millennium and the great white throne judgment. So that is something that is constant and will always be. And that makes it the greatest thing because that is what produces peace and joy uh, all the fruits of God's Spirit. So let's go to the book, the first epistle of John, And uh, look at it because here's the man who probably had the greatest love of any human that has lived on the earth. Others had great qualities. But the love comes through in John's gospel and in these three little epistles in a way that uh, is not really described anywhere else. I think perhaps Isaiah may have had elements of this kind of love when you read Isaiah it's strengthening it's comforting and he even said that God gave him the words to speak that would be encouraging so he acknowledged that God did that but he used the natural personality and gifts that Isaiah had in a way that Jeremiah or Ezekiel did not have in quite the same way they had other fine qualities don't get me wrong I'm not putting them down at all it's just that Isaiah had a way of putting things that was comforting and strengthening and, and hopeful uh, and the Apostle John has the same type of approach and of course we understand he was the disciple that in his words Christ loved and I think that the closeness of brotherhood with Christ was with John more than any of the other apostles and that seems pretty clear in reading it uh, because when they feared to approach Christ Peter said uh, hey John you ask him and John forthwith did he may have had to some degree the same fear that Peter did but he was so close to Christ that he knew there would be no repercussion and that he could be speak honestly, openly, sincerely, and ask a difficult question, which the others were having difficulty with. So, with that background, let's have John describe love to us, because that intimacy, that love, we need above all things on this earth today, and we'll need it forevermore throughout eternity. And he, if there's an expert on the subject, would be the one, John the Apostle. So let's pick it up and see what he has to say about love. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the Word of Life. So he starts out very intimately here at the very beginning saying we saw him we were around him we touched him I even leaned on his chest and that was probably not a one time thing there was a very close brotherhood there between he and Christ and that's the first thing he begins to explain as he writes his epistle that hey we were there we saw him we knew him and this is what I have to say about his love and our love is what we'll see as we go on. He says, For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show to you that eternal life. So, here is his specific purpose statement in this book. He wants to show us, give us some insights into the eternal life that what he is about to say will have bearing on our getting to eternal life and what life eternal will be like once we do get there. So this is as, about as important a subject as you could possibly get. He says, And show to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So if the Father had eternal life, Christ did, and then he came, and we saw him, knew him. We can explain to you, better than anyone else could, what Christ was like, and what he thought, what he taught, what he wants of us. He says, that which we have seen and heard, declare we to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. So he's writing to called-out church people and possibly to some new people being converted or newly converted. He was writing at the end of the era of the New Testament church being well up in his 90s and it was close to 100 A.D. when he wrote this. So he was the last man standing. And... Perhaps the love of God was what kept him going uh, till late, very late in life. And God wanted him there to write not only his gospel earlier, but these three as well as the book of Revelation. And uh, he introduces the subject of eternal life and what shall be here the book of Revelation goes into not only what will happen at the end of the age because of the lack of the love of God and disobedience to him and all the plagues and destruction that are about to come upon this earth because of sin and then he shows the contrast of the bride and what she will look like and be in the world tomorrow so John gives us great insight uh, in the Book of Revelation, as well, in verse five, uh, well, verse four. Let's no, I guess I skipped part of uh, part of verse three. We declare you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Emmanuel, the Christ. So, on a physical level. John says, we need to have fellowship together. And Paul wrote that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together so much the more as we see the end draw near there toward the end of Hebrews. And John is echoing that here, that we need to have fellowship together, but truly our fellowship is with the Father and with Emmanuel. So, we should be close with each other, because it is a direct type of what we should have with the Father and the Son. So we should not be estranged, we should not be fighting with one another, we should be growing together in love, unity, harmony, uh, not talking behind each other's back, not putting each other down, but growing together in love. And that is difficult with our human nature as it is. But he's pointing to what we've been talking about now for several sermons, and that is that the relationship we have here used to be a type of an even closer relationship with the Father and the Son. Now, you have had some close relationships with other human beings in your life, whether it be a mate or with your children or perhaps other friends. And there was deep closeness. There was trust. There was a feeling, if it was that type of relationship, that you could say anything to that individual and it would be taken in the right context, in the spirit in which it was intended, and you felt a love, a closeness that you don't feel with most people. Well, God wants us to have that as much as possible with each other, and then with them. So we need to be working on drawing close. And we're going to see that John gives us the keys on how to do that. I mean, it's one thing to know you need to do that, but how do you get it done? And that really is what this book is all about as we get deeper into it. Verse these things write me to you that your joy may be full. We don't want a sort of joy, a wish I had some joy, but a fullness of joy. And that comes with being, feeling like we're accepted, wanted, needed, cared for, loved by God and by each other. There's a scripture in Philippians that I, I read oh, 50 years ago, and I haven't looked it up, but it's in the uh, uh, Phillips translation. And I, I can't remember which verse it was, but but he said, God is the answer to our deepest longings. King James does not put it that way, but it, it just clarified something in my mind when I read it so many years ago. We can have close physical relationships, but the deepest longings we have are for God. And cultures around the world have some idea of an afterlife of some kind. It's programmed within us to know that this isn't the only thing that there is. And we seem to know that by nature, even the Gentiles so know nothing of the true God or even Christians who know nothing of the true God for that matter this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all and he's going to explain how to get from dark to light remember what it says there in Isaiah what is it 9 I think of the people that walked in darkness have seen a gray light. A God is all light, no darkness. In the world tomorrow, uh, when the temple of God comes down, they have no need of sun or moon because it is lit up completely, totally by the Father and the Son. Total light. So he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, And walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. There are a lot of people who call themselves Christians today, but they're walking in darkness. They do not know the truth. They have no comprehension of what the Bible is even talking about. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. So we can't be recluses, we can't be sociopaths, we need to develop close relationships one with another, not just, oh, hi, glad you're here, but be working on how do I get closer to that person and that one and that one and that one. Do we actively work at getting closer to each other? We should be, according to what he says right here. Because getting close to the Father and the Son is much dependent upon how we get along one with another. And we need to be as intimate with Him as we possibly can. So our friendships and our fellowship here need to be very close as well. And the blood of Emmanuel Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. He introduces sin here for the first time. What does sin do? It drives people apart. Uh, Take the last six commandments. When people lie, when they murder, when they hate, when they commit adultery, when they uh, covet something that is someone else's, their wife, their husband, whatever, they want or desire what somebody else has. That creates frustrations, problems, troubles, anxieties, and ultimately jealousies and hates. Oh, we're talking about the works of the flesh here. Sin, he will define later. But we have to be cleansed from sins in order to draw close to each other because if we're uh, sinning against each other, it pushes us apart. Just as he says there in Isaiah that our sins separate us from God, 61 or 62 verse, verse or 2. Our sins separate us from God. Now that's what's happened to us as Laodiceans, and there is a breach that has to be healed. Isaiah 58 talks about those who will fast with the right attitude and give what they have, their bread, their goods, to others who have need, (laughs) show mercy, compassion, and so on with them, that they will be the ones who are to be used as healers of the breach also mentions the Sabbath down there that we not walk on it and put our foot on it uh, because that is the day set aside above all others to commune with God. Six days we work and do all of our stuff, but the seventh day is holy. It is a day set aside for our relationship with the Father and the Son. And we also assemble together, as Paul said, so that we might also draw together as human beings. Now, we spend two or three hours at Sabbath service in potluck or four, whatever it is, and we visit and talk with each other. How much of the Sabbath do we set aside to talk with, to commune with, to consider the Word of God, to meditate? on His ways so that we draw closer to Him. It's a day that... How are you going to (laughs) sin? Well, you can in your mind if you let it drift off. But if you're not out working and you're not out playing and you're not watching entertainment or playing video games or whatever, but you're devoting the time to God and then in fellowship to each other, uh There's not much room in there to sin except with the mind and we need to control where it goes. So he cleanses us from all sin. That's why he died. He came to the earth to do that. So he introduces sin here and then he has a lot to say about it in this book. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And we don't like to admit we're sinners. Well, we don't mind admitting we're sinners. We just don't like to admit what our sins are to others. And even to ourselves, we don't like to admit it. And then sometimes we have trouble even going to God and admitting what our sins are, even though we might very well know what they are. But we're trying to justify keeping them, and therefore we try to hide them from him, and that's a fool's errand. We have to face the truth. Our deceitful, desperately wicked minds do not want to do that. So he says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So sin is what drives us from God, and if we confess those sins to him, and there's another verse, I think it's, where is it? uh, Well, I think it's Paul that says we must confess and forsake those sins don't quote me on that I can't bring back in my mind exactly where it is. but confess and forsake and he's willing to forgive those sins and clean us up to take the spot of sin off of us and from us because as long as they're there between us and him then we're not as close you've noticed that when you're doing something you know you shouldn't be doing or thinking something you shouldn't Uh, your conscience will bother you to some degree or another depending on how much you squash it or accept it and you know you're not doing right and it affects your prayers if you know you're doing something wrong it's really hard to go to God and cry out to Him with all sincerity and to plead with Him to forgive us to forgive you and you to be in His good graces when you know good and well but there's something that's separating so it makes it hard to have heartfelt meaningful uh, prayers under those conditions that's why he says there in James in terms of healing that the uh, well the word won't come but the beseeching prayer of a person of faith uh, avails much with God I can't quite say it at the moment I didn't get much sleep last night anyway Uh If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. God knows we sin. We don't even need to pretend to Him that we don't. We just need to be very honest and open with Him and no matter how egregious our sin might be, confess it to Him and say, Father, help me stop this. Help me get over this. You probably and undoubtedly cannot overcome the worst of your sins and attitudes without God's help. That's why the Holy Spirit is there to be called upon for help. You can't just go off on your own and say, well, I'm going to overcome this by sheer force of willpower. Won't happen. You have to cry out to God because He's the source of strength and courage and will and power. Human nature is a terrible thing, and Satan is as well. So let's be honest with God. He says, hey, let's be straight up, let's talk about our sins, let's confess them, and I will forgive you, and I will also help you to overcome them so that we don't have to continue with this conversation about that sin. My little children, these things write I to you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Emmanuel the Christ, the righteous. He's our mediator, he's our advocate. He's the one that says to the Father, You know, I face that. I had that problem. I didn't give in, but it was tough. Understand their frame down there. I understand it better having gone there and learned by the things that I suffered and all the temptations that I had and uh, I, I'm, I'm here to tell you that one needs help he needs strength he needs encouragement yeah we may have to paddle him but uh, let's make this work for him so he's writing this to help keep us from sinning because sinning is what drives us away from God and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world John is the one that wrote in in his gospel that he gave his only begotten son for the whole world not just for those he's called out but ultimately millennium, great white throne judgment everybody will come under the blood of Christ or at least have it offered to them whether they come under it or not Now, he makes a very, very important statement here. Verse 3, chapter 2. Hereby, we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. We all wonder sometimes, I think, what our real relationship with God is, what he thinks of us i well, John's telling us right here how to know, how to understand how God feels about you. If we keep His commandments, we know that we know Him. And sinning separates us. Keeping the commandments draws us close to God. So if you have one to three or five or ten of His commandments that you're not keeping, or not keeping properly... I don't mean just the physical part, but go back to Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and understand the spiritual part as well. Uh, That we have to do. You know, well, let's just take the temple, for instance. Covetousness. That's not a physical thing you do like tell a lie or steal something. Covetousness is all in the mind. Now once you covet your neighbor's car or house or wife or whatever it is is money that he has that opens the door for you to go do something physically perhaps to obtain it. But one of the big ten is just a state of mind. Something that you allow to go on in your head that and that is idolatry. Colossians 2 says that covetousness is idolatry. How so? Because you're putting your human desires, or what you want, ahead of what God says is legal for you to have. It's your neighbor's. It isn't yours, and you have no right to want it, whatever it might be. So, you are putting your own mind, your own desires ahead of God's instructions when you allow your head to go there. And that is idolatry. I want what I want, and we say, well, I don't have any idols. Yeah, your biggest idol is yourself, and your human desires to have what you want. So we have to control our minds. And the Ten Commandments were from Mount Sinai on Pentecost a long, long time ago, and it wasn't just physical rules, because covetousness covetousness was there as one of the Big Ten all the way back. So Christ didn't really have to magnify covetousness too much, did he? It was already a factor in the mind. So, if you say you know him, and you allow your mind to go where it doesn't belong, then you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. But who so keeps his word, in him truly is the love of God perfected. So he says, keeping the commandments are going to lead to the right kind of perfection of love. And he's going to say a little later on, that this is the love of God, that you keep the commandments. Commandment-keeping to a lot of people seems harsh, difficult to keep, don't want to keep. Stealing is fun. Adultery is fun. Lying is fun. All those things that we might desire for ourselves that give us a thrill or a high or whatever, are illegal because they have uh, an effect on others. But human nature is selfish and it wants what it wants and it doesn't really care about other people of and by itself. Well, there's a certain amount of emotion, but it's always me first. That is the history of mankind from Adam and Eve on down to today. So, love, to be God's love, has to do with the commandments. So the whole Christian world claims to have love, but they claim the commandments are done away with. Therefore, they do not have the love of God. There is not a Protestant out there walking anywhere, despite his protestations, who has the love of God. He may have kindness... He may have gentleness. He may be a patient person. But that's all human feelings. It is not based on godliness and righteousness. When you say the Ten Commandments are done away, you lose every definition of the love of God. That's why John spends so much time on explaining how the Ten Commandments reflect the love of God. And even we who understand the Ten Commandments are in effect if we allow one or more of them to dominate or affect or divide us from God's truth and His commandments then our relationship with God is compromised and there is not as much love there as there should be. And when we break those last six of those Ten Commandments toward other human beings, then the fellowship with humans is compromised. So, the only way to have love, joy, peace, happiness, patience, long-suffering, all the qualities of the fruit of the Spirit are through keeping the Ten Commandments. They produce those qualities. God lives by every one of His laws. He never breaks them, never has, never will. We do it without, without even thinking. And sometimes we do it even when we think. Sin comes easy. Breaking the commandments comes easy because all those commandments toward God and man are just the opposite of human nature. So what the world has Even Christianity is a false love. Even Satan's ministers can be transformed as angels of light. They can appear so loving, so kind, so sweet. I know some people, uh, know them well, recently who were in a cult, call it that, and I called it that in court, and told the judge that he was a cult leader like Jim Jones. But they were so full of kindness and sweetness and love and didn't fight. They just got along so beautifully. And to look at them from the outside looking in, you'd think, boy, that must be the love of God. Because it had everything, apparently, that we strive for. And yet it all came apart because of sin they believed the Ten Commandments were done away they didn't even think they needed the Bible anymore because Christ was there to speak in their ear and tell them everything to do and the attitudes to have and you never saw so much sweetness almost gooey it was so sweet how did they come to that without God without truth without the commandments and keeping them because Satan is transformed as an angel of light he can appear so sweet I have talked to demons who are pretty sweet they just seem kind they seem nice and yet you find out that wasn't God at all but it was demons they all have different personalities some are mean some are sarcastic some are angry some are violent and some are just as sweet as your great-grandmother. And it's easy to confuse them. But if people aren't putting God first, and they aren't keeping the Sabbath, and they're breaking the Ten Commandments, they do not have the love of God. Their love has to come from some other source. And John, before he gets through here, makes that very, very clear. So he's trying to point out, you better keep the commandments, or you're a liar. The truth isn't in you, and the love of God isn't in you. Because that's what defines God's love is the law. Verse 6, he that says he abides in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Christ never broke the commandments. He never sinned. First Peter 2.21 and other places show that he did not ever sin he never broke the law so he says if you say you abide in Christ if you say you're a Christian for instance and the people were first called Christian at Corinth that name goes back a long way (laughs) but there's a true Christian and a false Christian and if you're not keeping the commandments you are a false Christian even though you claim to be a Christian you gotta walk as he walked and that was without sin without breaking the law, physically or mentally. That is our goal and our purpose in order to have perfect love. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. He says, things haven't changed. It's like it always was. The Old Testament is about the law of God and obeying God, serving God, so you can be blessed instead of cursed. Come to the New Testament, and he says, let's take this a step further. Let's show our love by not even thinking wrong thoughts. And I'll give you the Holy Spirit to help you go there. So this isn't anything new. You've had it explained before. So he writes here that we have to keep the commandments if we are to learn what God's love is. And he says right at the end of the book of Revelation that those who do not keep the commandments will not be in the kingdom of God. Now people can go back to Galatians or somewhere in Paul's writing where he wrote many things hard to be understood as Peter acknowledged and say, well, Paul says the commandments are done away. Well, Christ didn't. And the last man standing, John the Apostle, in the last inspired writing in the Bible, the last chapter of it, says you gotta keep the commandments or you won't be in the kingdom of God. Is that clear? Paul isn't always clear. You use the clear scriptures to help interpret the ones that aren't so clear. But God caused Paul to write some of the things the way he did it so that they could be taken and snared and confused and not have to answer to it. I've said many times God could have written the Bible in a simple dick and Jane order that a second grader could understand. But he didn't on purpose. And Christ said, I, even here on this earth, he spoke in parables so they could not understand. The Protestants tell you, well, he just used simple farm analogies so that everybody could understand. No, he didn't. He said so. Because if they understood, they would be condemned. And you and I understand, and if we don't keep the law and come to have the love of God, we will be condemned. These people don't understand it, therefore they have a chance in the Millennium or Great White Throne Judgment. So there's nothing new here, he says, but he said, pay attention. Listen, let's let's be sure that we understand what the love of God is based on, because it's the greatest thing. And that's something pretty clear that Paul wrote. Love is the greatest thing. Verse 8, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is past, and the true light now shines. So he says, this is new in the sense that now you can comprehend, now you can understand the law and what happens when you keep it and what happens when you don't keep it. And the light now shines on the law of God and it shines on a greater understanding of it that Christ gave in the New Testament. Not done away, it's made stronger. He that says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even till now. If you hate any brother, you're still in darkness. Because God doesn't hate anyone. He loves the whole world, even in its sin. doesn't love the sin, but he loves the people and he's going to save them out of their sin. He loved them so much that he had his son and his son agreed to it, to give up eternal life and come and live as a human being on this miserable, wretched earth. The Earth itself isn't wretched. You look around outside where you sit today, most of you, and you have beautiful red rocks. I'm sitting here looking at meadows and trees that look like a green carpet. God made a beautiful earth. It's we and Satan who've loused it up and made it a miserable place. And hate is one of the things that does it. Hate leads to murder. King and Abel are witness to that. He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there's none occasion of stumbling in him. Now, if you hate your brother, you're going to stumble because you're breaking the law of God. Now, hate has different degrees. Esau had an unimaginable hate, uh, as have a few others that are listed in Scripture. It can be fairly mild by comparison, but it's still... A, a, dislike that uh, how do you you say it I mean absolute outright total hate is fairly easy to see and to understand but Christ tried to explain that there in in the Sermon on the Mount by saying he, he showed different levels of hate And how you can say this to your brother, and it's one thing, but you say it a little stronger, it's worse. And then if you say it even worse, it's the same as murder. So hate is ultimately murder. is where it winds up as it gets worse and worse, and the hate grows. And God says no murderer will enter the kingdom of God. So any kind of hatred is on the path to... An attitude of murder. And ultimately, we'll get there if it is not stopped, repented of, and changed, and turned around and sent the other way. He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no occasion of stumbling. That means that if there is some hate, uh, it causes you to stumble. And it could even cause the one that you have that hatred for to stumble. It could be discouraging and frustrating to them. We don't want to stumble. We want to walk surely. We want to walk in the steps that Christ left. And he had no hate. He loved everyone who was on the earth who has ever lived or ever will live so much that for every last one of us, he was willing to go through torture and death and that is the example that he has set for us how willing would we be to go through torture and death for any human being and especially for one that he just really don't like how hard would that be well a lot of people just aren't likable and yet God loves them so much every one of the unlikable ones that he sent his son to die for them And he is our example. Only for a righteous man would some dare to die. Very few. Far between. But Christ was willing to die for the most despicable of us. Whoever that might be. And we all have our moments. He that hates his brother, verse 11, is in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not where he goes because that darkness has blinded his eyes. Hate is an emotion. And we can become so polarized by dislike for someone that we lose our focus and we can't see where we're going because it becomes an overwhelming thing to us. It's what we think about. It's what we lay in our bed and try to figure out what to do to them or how to get over it or whatever we think about it but it, it is divisive between us and God because how do you go to God when you won't forgive a brother and God says I won't forgive you unless you do so that attitude of animosity or hate whatever to whatever degree separates between you and God and God says if you have that attitude you're walking in darkness and you stumble and you can't see where you're going so somebody who's filled with hate automatically is estranged from God and the degree of that hate also shows the degree of estrangement there's no room there Because it will blind you. And then you can't see where you're going spiritually. It is an impediment. Could Esau get close to God? No. Could he get close to Jacob? No. Right here at the end, Esau is contrary. Antichrist. Against everything Christ is doing with Jacob, the nations of Israel, and with spiritual Israel, the church. Totally against it. And he is going to do everything he can to murder every Jacobite, every one of every tribe of Israel. And that's going on right now. Because there are Edomites in the highest places of the so-called elite in the world who are working today, as I speak, to destroy this country and to destroy Europe and they're using Muslims that they're using Gentiles of every nation and soon they're going to gang up on the nations of Israel and destroy them. And God makes it very clear in the book of Obadiah that because of that hate and anger that Esau cannot get over that Esau and Edom will be destroyed. So does Esau, do the Edomites have the light? No, they don't have the light of God at all because their hatred is so great. So it's a matter of degrees how much it blinds you, how much you can't see, depending on how much animosity you have towards someone else. Shouldn't be any. God has no hatred or animosity for any human being. He has animosity for their sin, but not for them, and he hopes they repent of it when they get their chance at salvation and he hopes we repent of it now so if you see anybody that walks around with hate in their heart you might as well know they're walking in the darkness and they are stumbling spiritually and cannot find their way the darkness has blinded their eyes verse 12 I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake He's quick to forgive. He wants to forgive. He wants to give us his kingdom. But if we continue to sin, then we're putting that in jeopardy because those who continue to sin will not be in the kingdom of God. That's why he tells us, if you will overcome sin, you will be in the kingdom of God. So we have to be overcoming it to one degree or another and having less sin in our lives as time goes on. We just went through Passover and unleavened bread to symbolize that, but it goes on year round. That's just time set aside to focus on it so that we might understand that, hey, i got to work on this year round. Just because Passover is over doesn't mean you can go on thinking the way you think and doing as you do. I write to you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children because you have known the Father. So John spreads it around and tries to encourage people of all ages, both sexes, whatever, that there's hope that we can all have the love of God if we will keep his commandments any couple but some on some of the overcoming that they have done obviously uh, so that he is able to write that I've written you verse 14 fathers because you've known him that is from the beginning I've written you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one they have pulled back from the ways of Satan and the ways of this world and are obeying God and his commandments instead. And then he explains that. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the world is full of things, right? All kinds of things out there in society and culture today that are ungodly. So God says, if you love those things, if you are drawn to those things, if that's where your attention and time and energy and entertainment goes, you are of the world and you are not of God. You can't sit on the fence. No man can serve two masters. You either follow God's way with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, because if you compromise, the world and its ways, he says, the love of God is not in you. Why? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. We are to have no pride. We cannot or should not say, My son or my daughter, I am proud of you. Pride is not of God. Even the Father himself said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Pride indicates selfishness. It indicates I am above someone else. No. Tell your son or your daughter, if you be, I am so pleased with you. It's okay to be pleased, but don't be proud. What do proud parents do? My kid's better than your kid. My kid throws the ball better than your kid. My kid can read better than your kid. My kid's better looking than your kid. My kid's better, well, is better trained than your kid. That's pride. It's ego. It's selfishness. No. Well, pleased means your child is doing well, and it pleases you with no pride we use that term a lot I try not to ever use it if I can can help it because I understand pride is not of God but our flesh lusts after all kinds of illegal things covetousness whatever our flesh desires or whatever our eyes see that we want is covetousness And that is one of the Ten Commandments, and if we break that, then we are walking in darkness and in idolatry, putting our desires ahead of God. And the whole world does that. This world doesn't serve God whatsoever. Even Christianity serves themselves and say the commandments are done away. So everything out there is not of the Father, but is of the world. And who rules the world? Satan the devil, present ruler, evil ruler of this world. The world or the culture, or the society, passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. The will of God is that we keep his commandments, and they are not grievous. Little children, it is the last time, as you have heard, that any Christ shall come. Now, even John, this late in his life, after the other apostles had already been killed, still thought Christ's return was imminent. And Christ did not keep him from thinking that. He wasn't lying to him. He just didn't tell him any different. So we also have gone through that time after time when we've thought, well, this is it. Well, this is it. Over the decades, expecting and anticipating which helped us to at least keep trying to move forward hoping that it was near if somebody or if god had revealed to us very clearly 50 60 years ago that hey you got a long way to go uh, we would have relaxed we wouldn't have worked at it we just recently came to understand the 70 years of jeremiah I read that over and over and over again because Hananiah, I don't think it was, said it'll be a short captivity. Jeremiah said, no, you're going to die. It's going to be a long captivity. So build houses, have children. You're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. That's a long time, more than a generation. So he says, go ahead and live normally there in a physical captivity. Well, I read those scriptures in Jeremiah about that, and I thought, well, that has to do with that captivity, but what does it have to do with today? You know, I didn't come to understand that until just a few months ago, where I understood from Daniel and from Jeremiah and from Zechariah 1 that the 70 years is now completed, and we did what Jeremiah said started a college, trained a ministry to go out and build church houses. The ministry had children and grandchildren, and now some of them even have great-grandchildren. Because it was a long 70 years, from 1947 till 2017, when that 70 years ended. Had we known that in 1947, I don't think we could have held it together. But we kept setting goals, and now we despise, and some say, well, Herbert Armstrong was a false prophet. Not any more than John was here. God just didn't show Herbert Armstrong and he didn't show us until just recently lest we be discouraged. Now we know it has ended and it should give us impetus and strength to move forward rapidly and get as close to God as we can and turn with our whole heart so we can be found of him. So when he says the Antichrist shall come there are many antichrists already whereby we know it's the last time. Well, this scripture was written more for us than it was for those people back then. And that's why it was preserved for us. Now notice he says in verse 19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they are not all of us. So there was a falling away going on. And he says it's being sorted out as to who is a true servant of God and a willing follower and who is not. And we've seen that sorting and separation going on now for at least 32 years. Even started back in the 70s with the ministry starting to rebel. And we found out they were not really of us. The scripture is just as good today, or better, than it was when he wrote it about those people. But you have an unction, an anointing, in other words, from the Holy One, and you know all things. Well, they have a lot of knowledge, and we have a lot of knowledge. We had quite a bit of knowledge under Herbert Armstrong, and since then we've learned a whole lot more. Because now the end of the age is upon us, and we need to understand. What we couldn't understand back then. We need to understand now that it is upon us. The 70 is done. The 430 is done. The 65 years of Isaiah 7 is almost done. And when those are done, the scriptures very plainly see this nation is going to be destroyed. So it is upon us. It has come, it has come, it has come. As Ezekiel 7 says about seven, eight times, it is near, and no more the echoing. It's here. I have not written to you because you know not the truth, but because you do know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denies that Emmanuel is the Christ? He's an antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. You say, well, then, I don't deny the Father. I don't know. deny the Son you know what the Antichrist may not either they may say oh yeah there's a God but if they deny his commandments if they deny his word and his truth then they're liars and the truth isn't in them and even though they take the name it's only lip service it means nothing because it isn't godliness so they deny him indeed I am indeed who is going to be blessed the hearer or the doer the doer and they won't do so if they're not keeping the Sabbath and the holy days and all the things in the scripture that you know about they are not of God and even the very elect would be deceived because they will come as angels of light they'll do miracles signs and wonders John says in the book of Revelation and great power will be manifest by the beast and the false prophet but do they have the truth no they will not have it and that's why you will not be deceived by miracles because Satan can do miracles go back to Exodus 10 11 12 could the magicians do miracles go to Daniel Daniel did the magicians do miracles up to a point? Yes, they did. But then they couldn't do other things that God did. But they can do great signs and wonders. <laughs> How many people have the ability to throw a stick on the ground and become a snake? That's, that's pretty profound, isn't it? Verse 22, whosoever denies the Son, the same as not the Father. The Jews don't have the Father because they deny the Son. There's a good example for you. The Jews are not of God whatsoever. Let that therefore abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. What did Christ first say? What have we repeated? He says if that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you you also shall continue in the Son and the Father go back and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 what does he say about the law So he made it even more binding by far than it was in the Old Testament that's what they heard in the beginning that was the first sermon they heard first teaching from Christ apparently go back there he said Christ talked about love and the qualities of the Spirit in that uh, particular teaching verse 25 and this is the promise that he has promised us even eternal life go back and remember that when you lose focus and start to go after the world and realize that there's nothing there and in fact as Paul said if in this life we have hope only we are the most miserable of all men we might as well eat, drink and be married for tomorrow we die but remember that Life eternal has been promised to us, and therefore getting away from the world and serving God will give us life. These things have I written to you concerning them that seduce you. These, the false prophet, are about to try to seduce us all. They'll have a number in our forehead or our hand if we allow it, and we can't buy and sell without it, i.e., you starve to death unless you take the mark unless you are under God's protection in a protected place called Zion that they will try to seduce us but the anointing which you have received of him abides in you and you need not that any man teach you you ought to have gotten it by now he says and nobody needs to teach it to you you already know it what are you going to do about it is the question but as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. So if you want to abide with him, accept him, accept his way, accept his commandments, quit sinning, and you will be close to God. That's how you get close to God, and you'll go over that over and over, I won't get through it all today, but you get close to God is by stopping the sin which separates you from God and keeping the commandments which draws you close to God and now little children abide in him that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming why were Adam and Eve ashamed? they knew they had gone against his word they had disobeyed him They had stolen fruit that was not theirs. They had put their appetite and their eyes and what they might want ahead of God. So they had sinned. And they got ashamed. And they made big leaves and tried to cover themselves and go hide from God. Now when Christ comes, if we are keeping the commandments, if we are obeying him, what do we have to be ashamed of? We can stand in boldness and in confidence because we know we are keeping the commandments, not in self-righteousness, in self-justification, with a heart that is feigned, as God said Israel and Judah had, but a true, sincere heart of absolute obedience in spirit and in truth and in deed before God. Then we won't be ashamed for you know that he is righteous. You know that everyone that does righteousness is begotten of him. So he's righteous, you be righteous. Then the begettel you received is the begettel of God, not the begettel of Satan, who is a queer anyway. The world has a false pregnancy, thinking they're going to have a kingdom of God. And it's not going to happen because everything Satan does is false and fake. So if we follow the commandments of God instead of the no commandments of the devil, then we can have true righteousness. And when you draw close to him, he keeps his commandments. Christ kept his commandments. They are as close together as two beings in the universe can possibly be want to be that way with us so we need to be working on it with our physical relationships now to get as close as we can to care enough about each other that we take the effort to do so and that is a type of how we get close to God so the first four commandments have to do with that relationship with him and the last six have to do with that relationship with each other which if misused, abused, and broken also breaks our connection with Him. So all those things about other people that we lust or covet after are putting our physical desires ahead of God, and that's why the last one is covetousness, which is idolatry according to Colossians 2. So if you're not loving your brother... And you think, well, I have a good relationship with God, with the Father and the Son, but I sure can't stand my neighbors. Then God says, no, that's not true. Because if you can't have the right kind of fellowship with your fellow man, then you can't have closeness with God because all those commandments go round and round. You break one, you break them all. So, John is saying, if you want to get close to God and perfect your love in Him, keep the commandments. And you will come to understand the true love of God and come to dwell in His love, His love in you, and your love in Him. Well, that's it for today then.